live from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of woman in your window, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, political servants, and professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Charles Lipson from the University of Chicago, Peter Hanna of the uh, Kent College of Law, Joe Morris, former Assistant Attorney General of the United States under the Reagan administration, and Andrew J. Polk, talk show host for KTSM in El Paso, Texas, and Steve Lutnanek, who also hails from Texas, will be talking about the issues on the southern border. And thank you very much for joining us tonight. We are here live, coast to coast. Phone lines open, 1-800-723-8289, 1-800-723-8289. Uh, you can join us, and hopefully uh, uh, we'll get lots of uh, your uh, thoughts and opinions as the program unfolds. The second hour this evening will be primarily based on what's happening at the southern border uh, with the problems that the Biden administration has and the uh, the un- influx of, of people coming, influx from people coming from uh, Central America uh, trying to get into the United States. So that we'll talk that a, a little bit later. We'll maybe begin the discussion in this hour. But again, I want to begin by talking about something that uh, uh, President Biden said this week in a response to a question from George Stephanopoulos. Uh, when they were talking about Vladimir Putin. And he said that he had looked into Putin's eyes and had seen no soul, but then went on to say that he thought that Putin was a killer. And the response to that is that Putin has now challenged uh, Joe Biden to a live debate, worldwide debate. And my question to you, I'm going to start uh, with uh, uh, you, Joe Morris, because uh, nice to have you with us, one of the conservative uh, bright lights of American legal system. Thanks very much for joining us tonight. What's your, what's your reaction when you hear something like that? Because the the media appears to be overreacting to it, but should they? I think it's a very clever move by Mr. Putin. Uh, you know, I lived uh, through the uh, Reagan Gorbachev era. I was the chief of staff and the general counsel at USIA at the time of the Geneva and Reykjavik summits, and and. Uh, I have some experience with handling uh, debates between what what might be characterized as debates right. between uh, the president of the United States and the head of Russia at that time, the Soviet Union. Uh, and Joe Biden is no, is no Ronald Reagan. Uh, Mr. Putin clearly has an agenda. Um, uh, there's no question that Mr. Putin has learned how to play domestic American politics exceedingly well uh, with and without his fingerprints showing. He has created an enormous turmoil over a period of many, many years in American politics and is continuing uh, to to write a fascinating playbook. Um, should he be it, pun- what, Joe, should he is- be punished for that? Should he be punished for his past of course, uh, indiscretions there's involving uh, voting in the United States? There's no there's no ambiguity that, uh, that Mr. Mr. Putin and his, his Russia fo- follow policies that are an- antithetical and harmful. Uh, to the United States. Uh, the, the, the Democrats have a very difficult time with this, of course, because so much of their antipathy to Donald Trump played out in a completely farcical way, the contention that Donald Trump was was involved in some sort of quote-unquote collusion with, uh, with uh, Vladimir Putin in, in connection with the 2016 election. There is no doubt, uh, I, I think the evidence is pretty clear, that the Russians were interfering in the 2016 election and had been interfering in American domestic politics, including elections for years 
uh, mm-hmm. before that. Uh, I think they also played a role in the 2020 elections. They mm-hmm. should be punished uh, for that. But it, it, it seems to me that Mr. Biden has a very strange, uh, almost lack of a strategy uh, to deal with the, with the Russian I saving, wanna, the Russian I problem. Com- I want to come back to that uh, discussion a little bit later on, but I want to bring uh, Peter Hanna into the discussion. Uh, he is with Chicago Kent College of Law and also uh, uh, an, a member of ACLU, although he is here not as a spokesman for the American Civil Liberties Union, but he is on the left side of the political spectrum. And uh, Peter, what's your reaction to uh, uh, Joe Biden's uh, calling uh, Vladimir Putin a, a killer? Uh, was that a profile in courage or was it somewhat stupid? Um, what's in between those two things? Cause I think that's kind okay. of where it falls. Um, I, I don't think it, um, it, it necessarily, uh, is a bad thing. Uh, I think it's kind of obvious, but one thing I think to sort of build on, uh, uh, uh Mr. Morris's point is that the, the Democrat obsession with sort of, um, you know, Putin, Russia, like everything that possibly happened in 2016 was the result of Russian interference. And, You've had me on the show before, Bruce. Thank you for having me on again. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've said this. I think it sort of has become just the the thing to point to constantly as the reason you know things are you know bad, uh, and it's just become a convenient excuse for all, all sorts of you know Democrat uh, assembly, for lack of a better term. So I think Joe Biden saying that. I mean, yeah, pretty much every leader of every big you know country on the world stage is, to one degree or another, a killer. Um, but him stating that is sort of, it's much ado about nothing. I think the media, we hear so little from Joe Biden that when he does open mm-hmm. his mouth and the media does cover it, it becomes a big thing. It doesn't matter what he says. He's, he's not in front of the camera. Okay. He's not really out there. Okay. So we got to we gotta make do with what we get. And I think that's what the media is doing. Okay. Charles Lipson from the University of Chicago. He's always got lots to talk about on a lot of issues. We'll hear from him throughout the night. But what's your take on this, uh, Charles? Because uh, you've been a, a, an observer of U.S.-Soviet relations for a long, long time. It was an unforced error. And uh, Biden is uh, familiar with those. He makes them all the time. But I think, uh, and the reason is, it, it's truthful, of course, that that's not the problem. The problem is, what are you trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you, He doesn't need to signal to a domestic audience that he's going to be tough on Russia. That's the basic uh, theme of the Democratic Party, as, as Peter has said for uh, quite a while. Uh, what's he trying to accomplish with Putin? I think if he, the point is not to be hostile, but to be firm and clear. And I think that there's a bigger issue here. And the bigger issue is that I think it's important for our policy leaders to recognize that the biggest challenge is not Russia, but China. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think Trump failed in what, what looked like a strategy to try to pull Russia away from China by being friendlier to Russia. That would have made sense in the same sense that the Kissinger policy of pulling China away from Russia made sense long ago, but it failed and it is bound to fail. It won't work. Mm -hmm. And insofar as, uh, you know, Peter alluded to the fact that the president has not been very forthcoming, uh, is there anything more than, it, it sounds to me that when the media just complains that he won't have a press conference, won't have a press conference, it, it, it's it's already kind of annoying to me that they keep kind of forcing him out uh, into into the public when I'm not so sure other than reporters, 
I'm not so sure there's many Americans that want to hear from him. Joe? I don't agree, Bruce. What? I think... You don't agree. Okay. I, uh, let me tell you why. I don't okay. think that people... I, I think that Trump far overstayed his welcome in terms of the public sphere. So yeah. backing away from that is is fine. I think the problem is that people want to know who's running the bus, who's okay. driving the bus here. Okay. Is Biden really in charge of U.S. policy? He looks frail. Uh, there, It's not just gaps. People have questions about his cognitive decline. And I think that they would okay. like to know that he's making the policy. I want to find out. That we got we got, to, we got a break here. But I want to find out whether the audience agrees with that, that they want to see more of Joe Biden. I'm Bruce Dumont, back from Evanston, Illinois. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Wish you were here. Words we've often seen on postcards and letters from friends and family. Luckily, there's an entire state that whispers, wish you were here. Climbing my dunes, sailing on my breezes, walking along my beaches, and getting lost and found in my forests. This is a postcard from Michigan, where wishing you were here is the heart of pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Uh, this past week, we saw the uh, reemergence of uh, a, 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 a journalistic narrative that there is growing hate crimes against Asians in the United States. And uh, they, they used the situation of the horrible shooting in Atlanta in the massage parlors as an example of, of, of violence against Asian Americans. And uh, they've kind of worked that story for the last several days. Charles Lipson, do you think that's a is that a legitimate uh, story from the media or is it using a, a favorite narrative of theirs and just looking for anything that might fit into that narrative? I think it's a bit of both. Um, the numbers of hate crimes against Asians have risen, but the numbers are still quite small. I have a kind of a cynical and maybe somewhat different take on all of this. Mm -hmm. I think that Asian Americans, and there are quite a few different groups that that fit in within there, are really rapidly rising ethnic group. And I think, and they are increasingly on the front lines of opposition to diversity uh, mandates because it's excluding them from elite schools and all the rest. And I think that that the narrative is to try to reposition them as victims. So they'll be part of a victim's coalition. Joe Morris, do you agree with that? Uh, yes, I, I agree entirely. Um, I think that the, uh, the, the, the attempt here is to create a, a further case uh, in the in the in the broadside against quote unquote white white racism as a, as a, a pandemic uh, a great historical pandemic of its own 
um, and to include Asian Americans as a major segment of, of victims of, of white racism. I don't think the facts support that. I agree with Charles that, uh, that Asian Americans for the most part have experienced racism in a very different way. They have experienced racism as, as um, uh, uh, in, in, the, in the sense of being penalized uh, for tremendous success that they have that they have made in America, mm. uh, educationally, uh, uh, economically, culturally, and so forth. So, so that for for example, from coast to coast, from Harvard University to the University of California state system, uh, we have seen Asian Americans litigating uh, against uh, uh, quotas that have the effect of uh, reducing the numbers of Asian Americans who are permitted by those institutions. To, to, to attend school there uh, on the ground that they're too qualified, they're overqualified, they're overrepresented by virtue of their merits. Um, that, that I think is, is, is truly racism. Uh, I think, I think the, uh, some on the left have seized on this bizarre case in Atlanta, which seems to my eye to have almost nothing to do with race per se. Uh, as, as trying to shift the, the narrative to use Charles's phrase uh, to to create a, a a momentum that might be able to place the grievances of Asian Americans in in a in a in the pattern that more satisfactorily uh, to some is explained by white racism. And in, and, in, and, and in the in that case, I mean, uh, at least what we know now is the, uh, the 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 young man who perpetrated these allegedly. Uh, he, he was a, a self-admitted sex addict. And so he went to a massage parlor and in many massage parlors, there are Asian women. I mean, that's where you find many people who are engaged in the massage parlor business. Peter, I want to have you weigh in on this because, uh, uh, we're, we don't want to cast aspersions against anyone. But again, to me, it seems to me that the media jumped on this and, and, you know, they like to pull everything into their narrative, whether it, it fits perfectly or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I really uh, I tend to agree with the, have to agree with Charles again and, and Joseph to, to an extent about, um, you know, sort of the <clears throat> the fact that, you know, the media has jumped on it. There is a little bit of, uh, there is actual truth that like hate crimes against Asian Americans has skyrocketed. Um, I think in New York, uh, my, my hometown, um, they increased something like 320% uh, from 2019 to 2020. And it's just, I think it's the highest increase in the nation. So there is definitely like, a, there's a there there. But on the other hand, um, I think it's again, sort of the media making hay of something that, you know, like, it's funny because I don't think I've heard any coverage at all about sort of, we need like gun laws. We need like, right. you know, we need it, nothing. It it kind of shows how deeply sort of, you know, liberals have invested themselves into, you know, seeing everything through the prism of identity. I think a lot of Not conservatives. Quite, no, Peter, Peter, let me ask you a question. Yeah. I haven't heard any discussion of who's committing these crimes against Asians. Mm. I haven't, I haven't either um, in the mainstream. Do you like think mainstream, that white people in New York are the ones who are doing it? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I think the, uh, the, the identity that they're, that like the liberal media is tends to be fixated on is the identity of the, you know, the victim, obviously. So instead of seeing this as sort of like a, a chance to think about, you know, what leads people 
to just grab a gun and kill a bunch of folks. Cause I think it's actually much deeper than, I mean, it's not, he didn't do it out of anti-Asian atomists, you know, he did it out of, uh, you know, deep sense of presumably, you know, alienation, potential, you know, mental issues, uh, sex addiction, as he, as he said, right. But the way it's being sort of processed by the media, you're right. You don't hear about who the assailants are. Um, you don't hear about sort of the, the deeper issues about why this happens in America with the alarming frequency. You just hear, you know, this is an attack on Asian Americans. Like we need to fight back. And it's just super identity focused. And I think it's actually really, I mean, it's really bad because all of these issues, you know, when you see everything through nothing but identity, you can't actually address the issues. But in, and that's just the state of the media now. But, but also in Oakland, uh, in Oakland, at least based on some of the things that I read, uh, those that, that perpetrated these crimes were African-American. So I'm, I'm wondering if, if this is a, an issue where the media can't, they can't really reference who might be responsible because they don't want to cross that line and suggest that African-Americans are part of the, uh, the group that is uh, beating up and, and injuring uh, Asian-Americans. And certainly, you know, I mean, go ahead, Joe. I think I think Peter figured out something very important here, which is about the shallowness of the media narrative. The media narrative of the moment is the is the white racism narrative. Right. A couple of years ago, the media narrative of the moment was the gun violence narrative. Uh, and and unfortunately, the, the analysis is, is, is pretty shallow and it's tailored to fit whatever the political agenda of whomever the people in the media are cooperating with at the moment seems to be. Uh, I, I, I did a little bit of, of checking of the facts in uh, regarding violent acts against Asian Americans in Chicago, and the, and the numbers are overwhelming, overwhelming in Chicago, including in Charles's neighborhood around the University of Chicago, where there have been a few celebrated cases uh, in recent years of very violent attacks on Asian Americans, and, and the perpetrators in Chicago have been almost entirely African American. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't fit the current narrative, the narrative of white racism. Difficult here are the, is the fact that we have a very unbalanced individual with a problems that are not explained by racism or guns or any any political hobby horses. They're explained by mental illness. Uh, this is a man uh, clearly acting with unfocused rage of sorts. He killed eight people, mm-hmm. of whom not all were Asians and not all were female and not right. all were young. Uh, it's not exactly clear into what what basket of mental illnesses uh, his act, actions fit. Uh, but but they don't fit into any um, any anything that is easy uh, for the media to cover, or if dealt with in a in a fairly objective and fact driven way for any currently exploitable political narrative for any currently hot political narrative easily to exploit. And so notice that we're a crazy about the media as running narratives, and uh, I think that Americans now see. First of all, they don't trust the media. And secondly, they see what sophisticated actors like you, Bruce, or Peter, or Joe, have seen for a long time, which is you see these major media operations as political actors. And what I think you see now is that that sense that they're political actors is overridden even their most basic journalistic uh, responsibilities. Peter, do you agree with that? I mean, you know, those on the left, those on the right who've been on this program for 40 years, uh, they frequently will come together and say that the problem is the big, bad, big, bad media. Do you see it that way? How do you see their role? Peter? 
Peter, are you there? He's contemplating deeply, Bruce. Peter, are you there? <laughs> is Peter frozen or is he he's pulling my leg here? Yeah, he's frozen. Okay, he's Listen, frozen. He, okay. <laughs> if he comes back, I'll be, I'll, I'll be glad to be quiet. But go, no, go ahead. No. Let me take a step back. Joe, I, I, Joe, there's no, when we have when we have dead air. As long as I've got you and Charles, there will be no dead air. Go ahead, you first. <laughs> it may be hot air, but it won't be dead. I guess. Yeah. Um, listen, um, the uh, uh, Charles points to a very serious problem we have with our political culture at the moment, which is which is we don't have a media we can trust. Which is which is to say we don't have a source of a common set of facts that we can rely upon. To have, to have a good, robust, meaningful political discussion or argument, uh, we need to have some common fund of facts we can all agree upon. These are the facts, now what do they mean? Um, and uh, it may, I don't know that it necessarily began with the New York Times, but the New York Times a couple of years ago went off the deep end in a very serious way in seeing itself recalculating its mission. It's no longer the objective reporting of all the news that fits, but instead it's, it saw itself as having a mission to educate Americans, to move American society in particular directions mm -hmm. uh, by hook or by crook and to tailor the presentation of news, to select facts, to shade facts uh, rather unapologetically in that direction. Joe, now, we've, got to Joe, Chicago, Joe we've got we've got to pause yeah. on that. We've got a break coming up. Uh, we'll let you pick up on that point. And hopefully we will reconnect with Peter Hanna. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight on Beyond the Beltway. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness. Helping themselves. And helping each other. With friends, family, and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 14 clubs. That's what they tell us a legal golf bag can hold. And while that leaves a little room for balls and tees, it doesn't leave room for much else. There's no room left for deadlines or conference calls. Not a single pocket to hold the stress of the day or the to-do list of tomorrow. Only 14 clubs. Pick out the right one and drive it right down the middle of Pure Michigan. Your golf trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us from coast to coast and border to border. I hope uh, uh, you, uh, at least at some point in the last uh, 72 hours, uh, there might have been some team that you were rooting for in the uh, NCAA men's uh, basketball tournament. But uh, I know we, we had a big day here in Illinois where Illinois uh, played uh, Loyola University of uh, Chicago. And Loyola surprised them and beat them, and they looked they looked pretty good. Although I don't know how anybody can beat Gonzaga the way they played the other night. But again, great time. This is I think this is one of the best uh, times of the year if you're a sports fan. There's just so much going on, and again, uh, uh, basketball, college basketball, I think is so much more interesting to watch than, than pro basketball. So again, if your team uh, uh, is still in it, uh, good luck, uh, unless they play uh, the Loyola Ramblers, then I don't, I don't wish them any luck. Let's take a moment now and let all of our guests introduce themselves, take a few minutes and tell us uh, what they're up to. And we're going to begin by reconnecting, hopefully, uh, with uh, Peter Hanna. Peter, tell us a little bit who you are. 
Yeah, I'm sorry about the uh, connection issues. Sure. I'm out in uh, New York at my uh, family house. Uh, I don't normally keep a picture of myself with my mom as a baby <laughs> in my home, but I'm in my childhood room. So, um, my that's your Hannah childhood is, uh, room, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. That's. I think this. I think you're a first for uh, uh, oh. Beyond the Beltway doing it from your childhood home and do, doing it from your home, but not in Chicago. Go ahead. Yeah, I feel I feel very uh, privileged to to establish that. Um, so I'm an attorney, um, you know, very active, um, you know, civil rights activist. I work with the ACLU on a bunch of matters, and I teach law at uh, Kent Law. Um, you know, I consider myself more of a leftist than a liberal, um, but more than anything else, and and I hope the people who've seen me on the show before, um, I really focus on you know practical, just basic common sense solutions to. The problems we have, and I think there's a, there is a path there. I think for for people who see the world in a common sense way uh, to find consensus, and this show has given me a, a great opportunity to do that many times. I'm going so to I'm I'm ask a follow up. Sure. In under the headline "Common Sense," what is the what? Give me one example of a common sense solution that you would put a leftist tag on it. Sure. Sure. I mean, even even the term leftist has become more or less uh, an in, become an insult uh, here. But you know, something like police um, police issues, right? I think both left and right can agree that you know police should be accountable, right? They should be accountable if they do something really bad. Um, I've not met anyone on the right who says someone like Derek Chauvin, who uh, you know put his knee on George Floyd and and obviously uh, Mr. Floyd died, shouldn't be held accountable for that. And yet we have all these institutional sort of um, you know, things in place like uh, mechanisms that tend to push uh, accountability away from police, uh, qualified immunity being one, other sorts of immunity being another. Um, the difficulty uh, that it takes, you know, it's very difficult to discipline police, to fire police. And a lot of that is tied up in labor. But at the end of the day, I think everyone agrees that if a police officer violates someone's constitutional rights and it results in real damage and harm, you know, the police officer should be accountable for that. I think, um, you know, that's that's one one quick example, mm -hmm. um, but the pathway to get to accountability is where I think there's a lot of um, differences, and I think sometimes people get so tied up in the difference they forget about what they were originally talking about, which mm -hmm. is like the goal here is to make sure police are accountable. Mm -hmm. Here's a bill, you know, let's push this bill forward. Um, okay. So that's one example, I think. All right, let's go to Charles Lipson. Charles, uh, tell him a little bit about uh, who you are, and then uh, we're going to come back to some of these points that uh, Peter just referenced. Go ahead. Uh, I'm a professor emeritus of political science uh, at the University of Chicago, where uh, I not only taught international politics, that's really my specialty, but also taught a lot of political intellectual history and core Western values was a favorite course that I, I taught. I also enjoyed uh, helping students improve their writing. Speaking of writing, I now write a uh, a fair number of uh, op-ed columns. I do it for Real Clear Politics, for Spectator USA. I've had quite a few in the Wall Street Journal and, and several others. I like, I think of those, Bruce, as really an extension of teaching. That is mm -hmm. to say, they allow me, very much like your Sunday evening program, to engage in a con with a wider public about mm -hmm. important issues. And we will use, by the way, we will use one of your recent essays as a, as a jumping off point for our second hour this evening, which is going to discuss illegal immigration. And we have special guests from KTSM in El Paso, Texas, who will, who will join us. 
Uh, Joe Morris, you have a, a long and distinguished resume. Uh, summarize it in about 30 seconds. <laughs> well, thank you, Bruce. I'm a lawyer. I'm based in Chicago. I worked in the federal government under President Reagan, working in the civil service as the chief lawyer of the civil service. Uh, Clarence Thomas is a chief lawyer when he was the head of Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. I had I was the chief of staff and general counsel at USIA. I was an assistant attorney general at the Department of Justice. Uh, I, I view myself as an American. All Americans are my allies, my, my, my fellow citizens. We have a compact that ties us together. We need to take it seriously. It's called the Constitution of the United States. I'm very grateful that there are people on the left, like Peter Hanna and his colleagues at the ACLU, who take it seriously. We don't always see eye to eye, but when we do, we are able to make common cause. I have made common cause in litigation on the same side as the ACLU on a number of occasions uh, in the past, and I'm, I'm certainly open to doing it in the, in the future. Um, I, uh, as a conservative, I care about a lot about both tradition, that is civilization and culture on the one hand, and individual freedom and liberty on the other. I want to see both preserved. Uh, I look at government around the world and here at home through jaundiced eyes. When I was inside at the Department of Justice, I saw from the inside what a horribly incompetent agency the then Immigration and Naturalization Service was. And I worked with Attorney General Meese and others in efforts to reform it from the inside. We failed. I also see uh, the business of policing and law enforcement from the inside. As a private lawyer today, I'm most often opposing prosecutions, and rightly so, because that's the job of a lawyer. And under our Constitution, the government's got to make its case and cross all the T's and dot all the I's. At, at the same time, I'm very grateful to police and other first responders who run toward trouble when everybody else with a sound mind runs away from it to protect us from, from horrible things. But I have to say, I look at I look at military, I look at the death penalty, I look at the, at the business of policing through the same lenses with which I look at all the rest of government. They're all government programs. And because they're government programs, they need to be looked at skeptically and closely and carefully all the time. The protection of liberty requires that. And, and if, um, if we pay attention to the Constitution of the United States and the principles and values that it embodies, the left and right ought to be able to rally around those principles and those values. Joe, I thank you for that introduction. And also, I wanted to say that uh, we had uh, an emergency uh, shift in a booking for uh, tonight's broadcast. And uh, Joe was uh, agreeable to come in and step in at the last moment. So, Joe, thank you for that. And in in referencing who the other guests were, I mentioned uh, that Peter Hanna from the ACLU was going to be on the program. And uh, you you made the comment that you've worked with ACLU in the past. Uh, but uh, you think they've been AWOL on an issue. And I'm wondering if you could sort of set that up and we'll let Peter uh, tackle it. Uh, Bruce, uh, you've teed something up very nicely for me, but I'm not catching the reference. What's the issue in which which I think they're AWOL? You know what? Uh, We're we're getting a very bad signal on your audio right now. I did not hear what you said. I I, I said, Bruce, you have teed up uh, uh, very nicely an issue for me. Some, some point on which you think I, I think the ACLU is AWOL, but I'm sorry. I don't know what the issue is. I, I'll, I'll take a stroke. Oh, was I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm I, sorry. I have a little Alzheimer's moment here. It was Professor Lipson who said it. I'm sure that Joe probably agreed with it, but Professor Lipson, go back to you. Give us the, give us the very agree. short, give us the very short version because Peter might even agree with you, but go ahead, Charles. Who knows? Uh, Peter, this is common sense. So if you don't agree with it, you don't have any common sense <laughs> at all. That's, uh, uh, it's been said. Yeah. <laughs> so 
I've been very actively involved in free speech issues on campus. And uh, my sense is that free speech is really besieged on campus. Uh, it's not defended. And the main reason it's not defended is if you can say that anything that's being said or any event or any organization is somehow, in your view, not advocating social justice, then it needs to be shut down. And my sense is that ACLU has not been very active in that regard uh, on campus. Uh, FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, has been very active in, in a bipartisan way, that is on left and right. Uh, but I would like to see ACLU involved. Right, let's let Peter respond, even though I should mention he is not here as a representative of the ACLU, but he supports their uh, their mission. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I can't speak for them or, or what they're doing on campuses or, or otherwise, uh, really. But what I could say, uh, Professor, is that, um, you know, I think the, the ACLU's record of representation um, on free speech issues really speaks for itself. They've represented everyone from, you know, Nazis who wanted to march in Skokie to much more recently, you know, the uh, folks who organized the Charlottesville rally. Um, they, you know, much to the sort of chagrin of some of the people who, uh, you know, have written open letters to the leadership of ACLU saying, can we be more, you know, selective in our free speech, First Amendment representation? Um, you know, I, I think the it's sort of tied into the DNA. Again, I can't really speak for them. And given my proximity to them and how closely I work with them, I, I don't want to give a misimpression that I know anything that the general public or other ACLU supporters don't. Um, but I could say that, you know, I think anyone who has an issue, it doesn't matter if it's on campus, it doesn't matter if it's a parade, it really doesn't matter what your ideology is, right, left, whatever, you can reach out to the ACLU, they have an intake line, you could, um, you know, tell them, you know, your situation. And I know, uh, I've seen firsthand that they, they hear everything. So I don't know if it's a capacity thing or, you know, if it's the fact that the world is, you know, kind of on fire uh, for a few years and continues to be. But, um, you know, I, I, if you do have anything in particular, okay. you should definitely We've got a break. reach out to me. We've got a break. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks very much for joining us when we come back. Illegal immigration, problems at the southern border. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one -on -one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Along the way is where we find the unexpected. Along the way is where we take in the scenery, and often where we have the most fun. Sure, along the way can be the place we stop to fill up or grab a bite to eat. But in Michigan, along the way becomes the place we've been longing for. Because enjoying the journey is always pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. back on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us uh, tonight. Uh, Joe Morris, a question to you. You mentioned, obviously, your, your long service uh, to the Reagan administration and what you were observing was happening at the Justice Department working with, with Ed Meese. Um, 
regular listeners to the program know that Ronald Reagan, uh, during his tenure, uh, tried to do something about the illegal immigration issue in this country. What was it that Ronald Reagan was trying to do, I believe it was in 1986, that really didn't quite come out the way they thought it would? Well, basically, it was a trade-off of of two things. Uh, On the one hand, Mr. Reagan uh, agreed to provisions that allowed for the legalization, in effect, of a large population of immigrants who had unlawfully entered the United States uh, and uh, agreed to arrangements that are provided for the conversion of their status to lawful immigrant status, which eventually would put them on paths to green cards and citizenship, in exchange for which um, uh, it was agreed that there would be a couple of changes in terms of how the immigration uh, system operated, how, how the entire governmental system operated in effect, uh, to, to diminish the incentives for illegal immigration. One of those was a clear-cut requirement of lawful immigrant status in order to hold a job. And uh, concomitant with that was the imposition nationally by congressional legislation of a requirement that employers, upon hiring anyone, verify uh, that either the person being hired was a, a United States citizen uh, or, in the alternative, had lawful authority to hold employment. And the, the law imposed penalties on employers uh, for employing persons who were not lawful United States citizens. And then the, the, the second prong of the reform was to diminish or eliminate it to the extent possible uh, uh, benefits, welfare and other sorts of benefits uh, that were made available to unlawful immigrants so that, that those incentives, the incentives of employment and uh, of welfare benefits would be denied uh, to people who came to this country on what went wrong so to diminish Joe, what went wrong what went wrong was the 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 so-called amnesty was approved that went thoroughly into effect and the it turns out that in, enforcement of the other two prongs of the of the concord of the agreement that is enforcement of the prohibitions on the employment of uh, persons without lawful authority to be employed in the united states and the pro d- diminution of the availability of welfare benefits failed uh, uh, states, Congress itself, continued to offer welfare benefits to people without regard to, uh, to uh, status. Uh, there was some litigation on the point. We saw it in, in just re- in, in the most recent election campaign. Every single Democratic candidate for president in 2020 uh, held up his or her hand when at a debate when the question was asked, "Would you supply?" Uh, but Joe, do any do any do any of the oh, figure? You you you, you yes. made you've made the point that that you know was maybe Democrats in Congress, but. Are there any Republican fingerprints on that? I mean, I've heard people say that that Ronald of Reagan course. turned the other way. I mean, does he does he does he bear some responsibility for the mess we have today, along with Democratic leaders back then? Every president in every Congress for the last forty years, for the last fifty years, bears responsibility for it. Actually, goes back to Lyndon Johnson. Uh, we have a completely broken immigration system. We have a system that denies lawful immigration status to people who have perfectly good reasons for coming to this country. We have it. We have a, we have legacy systems of, of preferences uh, and, uh, and so forth that are, uh, that, that are, that makes no sense. Uh, we, 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 we have abandoned serious enforcement of, uh, of, of uh, the border controls in so many parts of the Southern border. Um, and uh, we've, we've, we've allowed people arriving in this country lawfully on, on, uh, vacation visas, tourist visas, the 90-day visas, to overstay their visas without repercussions. And these are people not coming from 
across the southern border. These mm -hmm. are people coming from all over the world. Enforcement has been very terrible. But at the same time, the bureaucracy that is meant to make it easy for people we want to come to this country, we want people to come to this country who are seeking liberty and who want to come to work. We, we want to make it easy for people who are educated and talented and have something to offer to the rest of the American people. We want to make it easy for them to come and be lawful and join us, become Americans, uh, become full-blooded Americans, uh, you know, have an easy path to permanent residency and to citizenship. And the laws and the bureaucratic systems that we have in place, and we've had them in place since my days in Washington under President Reagan, are completely inimical to those American national interests. We have a completely broken immigration system in every way at every level. And it needs it needs reform from top to bottom. Peter, do you agree with that? Do you, do you agree with with what Joe has just said, Peter? I agree with a lot of what Joe said. I mean, I think the the uh, system that could be we have visas that could effectively be you know bought. Citizenship could be bought here pretty easily. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of exploitable. You know things in our immigration system that uh, loopholes and just um, you know I don't want to speak to anything in particular, but like on the other side, of course, there's a lot of problems with our immigration system. We keep out people who you know should be here. We are unfair people who you know just appear uh, for no fault of their own. I mean, I I had no say when my family immigrated to America from Egypt in you know the early '80s. Um, if they hadn't done it legally, they did. Uh, if they hadn't done it legally and, you know, they were deported or they were uh, sent away. Um, and then I were, I grew up in America and, and then I was told, hey, sorry, you're an Egyptian now. You're an Egyptian citizen. Go back to Egypt. Uh, I have no idea what to do because I, I obviously am an American in my mind. So I think, I mean, it needs to be fixed like a lot of our institutions and systems top to bottom. And I think uh, Joe made some good points about the areas that I think are exploited uh, that need urgent fixing. But I, I think it's, we gotta, um, I gotta, you know, we shouldn't forget about the fact that there are a lot of folks I gotta who break. came here I gotta, you know, I gotta not break. by their own choice when we, when or we came come here back, out of desperation. Uh, we've got um, I've got to break. i got to break. i got to break. Joe, thank you very much. I know you have to move on. Thanks very much for joining us in hour number one. Charles Lewis Peter Hanna will be with us in number two, hour number two, and we'll also be joined by two guests from KTSM in El Paso, Texas. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. Illegal immigration. Problems of the southern border. Topic for number two. For some, news is about their opinions. We believe the news should give you the facts without bias, so you can form your own. We believe in news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America to give you the information you need. Everyone calls it the news, but we'll actually deliver on it. Seven nights a week in primetime. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. News Nation. It's your news, your nation. 
Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog and new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. Bruce Dumont back for our number two of Beyond the Beltway, wherever you're listening from coast to coast. Nice to have you with us this evening. And uh, joining us now from El Paso, Texas, is Andrew J. Polk. He is uh, the afternoon host on one of our oldest affiliates. Andrew, nice to have you with us on Beyond the Beltway tonight. Thank you very much for the invitation, Bruce. Uh, excited to be here. Very good. And also, we are scheduled to be joined by Steve uh, uh, Ludenuk uh, from El Paso, but uh, mm. we have been uh, unable to connect with him for some technical reason. However, Charles Lipson from the University of Chicago continues to join us uh, here in Chicago. And Charles, in the last hour, you referenced that you had recently written an essay about the problems at the southwest border. And I'm wondering if you can give us a maybe a 45-second summary of uh, your thoughts, and then let's uh, let uh, Andrew and uh, callers uh, to 1-800-723-8289 respond to it. Um, uh, Thank you, Bruce. Uh, The essay, uh, which will be in uh, Real Clear Politics on Monday, uh, which is an open access site, realclearpolitics.com, is called Baghdad Bob, 
at the southern border. And Baghdad Bob, as you recall, was the person who kept saying, we're doing just great while bombs were literally falling behind him and no American troops are in the country. It's all an illusion, he was saying about Iraq. He was shortly thereafter captured by the illusory troops. And so I was calling attention to the fact that the uh, administration is saying, uh, there's no problem here. Don't believe your eyes. And then, of course, they're keeping those eyes blind by preventing people from actually seeing what's going on. They can't accompany border agents on the patrols and they can't go inside right. uh, the migrant facilities. So, let, me, let me interrupt for just, just a second. Yeah, I'm going to sure. give you a chance to elaborate on that. But I want to go back to Andrew because uh, mm-hmm. he has been uh, basically at home base down there for quite some time. I'm observing this issue. And Andrew, I'm wondering if you can give us your perspective of where things are now in El Paso and uh, the reaction of the local people to uh, what has now become a a laser-focused national media attention. Yeah, we've become pretty used to getting attention on this topic over the past few years, particularly in the last administration, but definitely before it as well. Um, That congressional visit that just happened with the uh, Republican uh, congressional delegation Uh uh, was very interesting. It had the view on that uh, we build the wall section of the wall that was built here. And it is a bit unusual because we have been, of course, having immigration issues here for decades at this point, even before the weird thing that's happening right now is that this unaccompanied minor wave in previous kind of sections of whatever you want to delineate what the immigration is happening. It hasn't been happening here, but now it is. So that's one very different thing that is definitely uh, a little bit befuddling to some of the local area because it's not really advantageous for frankly, anyone to try to cross here, even with asylum processes, because Mm -hmm. we have a incredibly low of actual successful cases along that. So it's a bit different. And we're still kind of trying to figure out what is going on. And uh, I've had some communication with some of our local border officials and with uh, CBP and Border Patrol. Is it? Yeah, they're kind of trying to get their arms around it, too. Andrew, do you would you say that El Paso is one of the weakest links in the southern border or is it one of the strongest links to keep uh, Mexican immigrants out? So that's actually a very interesting question because there's not a lot of wall technically around us, but El Paso Uh proper, like within city limits and surrounding areas, has had a a version of the wall for decades now, going back to previous uh, congression uh, Congress versions that we've had in our area. So it was a little bit of an oddity here. So around us, there's a lot of open space, but El Paso itself very much has that kind of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And... uh, what about the impact of of uh, those from Mexico coming to El Paso? Do do they come in daily and work there? Uh, how many of them have work visas? How many are literally? I'll I'll describe. I'll just say sneaking in and uh, just uh, you know heading north. I mean, there's definitely an aspect of that, but the vast majority of cross-border travel is, it goes both ways, frankly, because there's industries on both sides called maquiladoras. That is a major part of the industrial base. Frankly, if you look at the El Paso region from satellite, El Paso and Ciudad Juarez are city right to the south. Uh-huh. It looks like one giant metroplex with a sliver of river right. in between it, and that's pretty much how it operates. So yeah, people go back and forth, both for shopping, though not as much since COVID, and for you know, economic and employment reasons. And, and, and Juarez on the Mexican side, that's one of the largest cities in Mexico, is it not? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. That's, okay. Considerably uh, larger than El Paso, yeah. considerably larger than El Paso. 
Uh, yeah, it is the bulk of the population of our immediate region. Yeah. Okay. We've been talking about Mexicans, but a lot of the people who are coming in are not Mexican. Is that correct, Andrew? Yeah, that's something that our local reporters have done a good job of kind of documenting. One, the MPP Remain in Mexico policy was still in place that there, I mean, there was a decent amount of it, but a lot of uh, Central, South American, and even uh, Pacific Islanders and beyond in those shelters that were set up there as uh, being trying to be participants in that program. Mm-hmm. Now, again, uh, the the administration, uh, oh, the, the old administration, and uh, Mr. McCarthy, uh, uh, Representative McCarthy, They've raised the, the possibility that uh, in addition to those from Central America that are coming into the country or sneaking into the country, uh, there are those from the Middle East, and they're raising the possibility that they might be terrorists. Uh, how much of that is real and how much of it, how much of it you know, might be political hype? That's something that we haven't seen much concrete on yet. I mean, the, again, there's weird stuff happening right now. The fact that I'm an company are coming to our section of the border, they usually go to the coast just because it's easier. That is different. And so we're still adjusting a bit. Haven't seen much concrete on actual uh, cartels. And one of the more things they said was that might be being used. This is a distraction effort that they're doing this, sending them here to then provide the ability to sneak across or go across in other areas. So that's a new wrinkle that we really need to look a little bit closer on to see if if that really does bear out or if that is like, a, okay, we're concerned about that, but is it happening kind of situation? Now, at the White House, they are complaining that, uh, or, or the media is complaining that the White House is keeping reporters from having access to any of the uh, of the facilities down there. Has this been the same MO for local reporters? I mean, do they have more or less access than the national reporters? To a certain extent, I mean, we know where the facilities are, can at least go view them. I'm not really aware of any local reports that have happened recently of where people were actually getting inside the facilities. Uh, the congressional delegation that just came through mentioned that they were able to view some. And I believe there was one local report about a, a ride along that happened recently, but nothing about actually inside facilities, what things look like. And that's a change from the Trump administration, right? Uh, to a certain extent, yeah. I mean, we had during the Trump administration, Democrat congressional delegations that came through. Some of those uh, pictures that still get passed along happened within our region here. Um, basically, the message we're getting in here is that as this administration is changing and changing priorities, things are kind of not as free-flowing information-wise as it was under previous administrations. Things are getting kicked up to higher levels as, I guess, priorities are getting redefined on what they're talking about and how they're dealing mm-hmm. with it. Charles, uh, when when you look at this uh, issue, do you see any uh, any break in the action, or is this going to continue to be uh, maybe the dominant issue of the 2022 congressional election? I don't know if it'll be the dominant issue, but it'll be a big issue, and it's going to get worse as weather in Mexico gets better because the signal is out to Central America. The door is at least cracked open, and people are coming. Yep. I want to talk more about uh, what's happening uh, you know, on the, on the border there, and also we're going to reach out and find out uh, where Steve might be. He was going to join us, and uh, we'll see if uh, we can find out where he is for segment number two. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. And beyond the Beltway. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. 
That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Wish you were here. Words we've often seen on postcards and letters from friends and family. Luckily, there's an entire state that whispers, wish you were here. Climbing my dunes, sailing on my breezes, walking along my beaches, and getting lost and found in my forests. This is a postcard from Michigan, where wishing you were here is the heart of pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back. We continue with Beyond the Beltway, and Andrew J. Polk joins us from KTSM in El Paso, Texas, and uh, Charles Lipson continues with us uh, from the University of Chicago this evening, 1-800-723-8289. We're having a little difficulty connecting with the one scheduled guest we had from El Paso. So if you are listening on KTSM, uh, I would be very interested in getting your perspective of how your life, your daily life is affected by this spotlight. And uh, one thing I, I found uh, most interesting, uh, at least a couple of years ago, Andrew, mm-hmm. uh, El Paso was one of the safest cities in the United States. <laughs> that is accurate. We routinely have many more traffic fatalities than any other kind of fatality, frankly, here, because we're I-10 major thoroughfare. And, yeah, we have generally very low violent crime rates, uh, slightly less than average other crime rates as well uh-huh. okay i have a question go ahead you, charles um actually a couple of questions one of the things that was has been interesting in texas over the last uh several elections is that it's getting to be an increasingly close state between mm. uh republicans and democrats it used to be sort of firmly red and now not um and uh yet now we're seeing uh, Democrats in Texas clearly uh, very concerned about the effect of this immigration surge, this illegal immigration surge on their own prospects. If they see the National Democratic Party uh, splitting from them. And I'm just wondering, uh, what are you seeing in terms of how local Democratic leaders, especially congressional leaders, are uh staying in solidarity with or breaking with the Biden administration and the national party on these issues. I don't see a whole lot of daylight necessarily. Our area congresswoman, uh, Veronica Escobar, for the Texas 16th congressional district is pretty close there. I think there might be a little bit of maybe frustration on the lack of concrete action or them saying, okay, this is exactly what we're going to do at this point, but not a whole lot of daylight on the overall position of how it should be handled, just a lack of it's not being handled that way at the moment. But I also we should mention in the, in the recent in the recent election, there were, I think, two or three uh, you know, a, a border communities in Texas, not necessarily El Paso, uh, but border communities with Mexico, uh, that although they were Democratic con- congressional seats, uh, Donald Trump did extremely well, better than in many other parts of Texas. So to, to say that all Hispanics who live in the United States somehow, you know, are bitter towards Donald Trump, that, that's really not true, at least uh, recently in Texas. I'd agree with that. There's actually, um, based in El Paso, a couple of efforts meant to recruit Hispanics to the Republican mm-hmm. cause, including a couple like border Hispanics for Trump, uh, Latinos for Trump that I'm sure will continue on in these coming ones because the argument there is they're a lot closer culturally 
to what the Republican Party espouses. I understand. I would, I, I, and excuse me for interrupting, Charles, yeah, but I understand I would, that Steve uh, 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 Ludacek uh, is joining us now. Steve, are you there? I'm here, Bruce. How are you doing? I'm fine. Forgive me. I probably butchered your last name. Give me the correct pronunciation. I've heard it every which way, so it doesn't offend me. Okay. Uh, it, the, the correct pronunciation is Letnich. Letnick, okay. Uh, let me ask you, uh, Steve. Uh, tell us a little bit. You you have spent your your family has spent uh, several generations uh, farming and ranching in that area. What 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 observations do you have? Uh, how how the situation in your backyard has evolved over the last, let's say, five years? Okay, over the last. Oh, well, we can go back a little bit further. Let's That's say over fine. the last. Uh, over the last 20 years, Very because uh, okay. as, as, as as we've continued to see, when we have people in office who who enforce our immigration laws, then the problem virtually ceases to exist. And then the minute that we have elected officials that are promoting uh, the influx and promoting the violation of the laws, then the problems emerge all over again. Now, prior to having uh, what we, we, we what we locally here called the fence forever, and now most people know it's the wall, mm-hmm. uh, because we were lucky enough, we were fortunate enough to get that built under the Bush administration for most of El Paso County. Okay. And we saw an instant dramatic drop in all of the issues that we had dealt with. Uh, when I was growing up, it was not uncommon to see our cotton fields trampled by a, I mean, a whole swath of, of the field be, it would be irrigated, and then it would just be trampled by people who had crossed in large groups. And uh, we had issues like that for, for a long time. When I was 16, I was working what about on now? the farm. Uh, what about now? If we, were to go back to, if we were to go back to that area now, uh, what would it be like now? Uh, well, right now, at the moment, it's because because we have the wall, and uh, because the border is in, is enforced in our sector, uh, we have virtually no problem. Now, you go right outside our county line, though, Husband County does not have a wall. So uh, as soon as you get to, th- th- they have portions of it that were constructed, but nothing, nothing completed. So uh, th- it's porous there, and everybody is funneled in that way. And then I know that on the and then the same thing goes for on the opposite side of our, our, our county. As soon as you get into New Mexico, where it's just land that separates, and you don't have they don't have the benefit of the Rio Grande, they're seeing the same thing there. And when people, when when a Mexican family uh, or from Honduras, let's just say a mm-hmm. family from Central America, when when they cross yeah. the border illegally, okay, let's say you've got a family of four, mm-hmm. okay. And yeah. they have they have avoided the border patrol, so they're walking mm-hmm. up to your your backyard, or or if not your backyard, a yeah. neighbor's backyard. I'm trying to paint a picture of what happens there. Um, well, see, are, we, are, like, they, are the uh, police we, called? What what happens when they walk into your backyard? Well, I mean, we dealt with that quite often, and uh, uh, I mean, most of the time, you know, people trying to walk through the Chihuahuan Desert in the middle of the summer. It's not. It's not a pleasant experience. Right. So uh, we were, we were always more than happy to share water with them uh, and uh, contact the border patrol. And most of the time, after having gone through that and survived, 
they were more than willing to hand themselves over to the border patrol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, especially now with the with the uh, uh, with amnesty being the way that it is, as soon as they get across, they seek out border patrol to be able to to to, to scoop them up. And you say if they get across now, they will go to the border patrol because they want to go through some sort of processing for asylum, or is it just processing? Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly that's exactly what, what, what they do. So the minute they get across, they'll they'll flag down border patrol and let them know that they're there and they're they're seeking amnesty. Okay, and then they go through that whole process. So the number of then, those that the number of those Steve that are running from the border patrol to try to sneak into El Paso or other counties and just sort of fade into the woodwork. Is that a relatively small number that we're talking about now? Yeah, I would say that's relatively limited. Very, very few, probably. Andrew, I mean, would you try to sneak into the country, yeah. but not once they're in the country, try to evade border control. Right. Andrew, exactly. Exactly. Andrew, you wanted to add a, add a exactly. comment to that? Yeah, I'd agree with that. And in fact, uh, just driving along, we have a highway that goes right by the border. And the interesting technical factor of that is, is that the fence that we have, often called the wall, it's been improved. It's technically on U.S. soil, both sides of it. So people will come up, and I've seen groups of them literally at the fence talking with Border Patrol because they are then at that point on U.S. soil. And according to the international treaties and laws we've agreed to and have written, uh, they can claim asylum at that point. That is something that had been, again, pushed into Mexico under MPP, but uh, we've seen those differences starting to change now. Who Let determines me. who determines um, who is going to be gain, who is going to receive asylum and who does not? It eventually goes through the courts here. I mean, they can claim it, and then there's a whole process they have to go through that ultimately gets decided by immigration judges. Now, these aren't Trish judicial yeah. branch judges technically, but uh, they, it is a judicial process they go through. Let me say something about that. Um, what happens, uh, Bruce, is uh, that you come in, you say, I want to apply for asylum. And there are rules about what qualifies for asylum. For example, simply wanting to uh, do better for your family and escape poverty and so forth is not a grounds for asylum. So you, you have to go before a judge. But there are a million people, literally a million people waiting for court dates. So what they do is they process you and then they say, come back in four or five years for a court date. Well, most people don't ever come back. And of those people who do come back, about three quarters are denied asylum. And the numbers from Central America are about 80% are denied asylum. But if they fade into the country, they may just be able to stay here for a long time. And the Democrats sometimes press for amnesty again. And uh, so they think, well, maybe I can make it. Is that the way you see it, uh, Steve? Yeah, I would uh, I, I would definitely concur with that. So you, you do have a lot of people. Uh, especially when the when when the DACA stuff was was uh, was going on, there, there would be people that would be bringing kids across. Sometimes not even necessarily their own, but when when the, when the Obama administration was allowing, and now again the Biden administration was allowing people to stay here while waiting for their their while waiting for their day in court. Well, then it's easy. You have four years, like he was saying, to fade in and to and to uh, and to and to try to seek amnesty mm-hmm. uh, or to try to seek some you know try to seek some some form of of uh, 
uh, of ability to stay. You know, trying to trying to get jobs here. We have uh, we, we have we have we have to break right now. But when we come back, I want to talk about uh, friends and neighbors of yours, Steve. May they may be neighbors or listeners mm-hmm. of, of Andrew J. Polk on uh, KTSM. Uh, they they come here. They are illegal. But they have found an American family that wants to help them. I want to find out how often does that happen, and we'll do so when we continue. I'm Bruce Dumont. This is Beyond the Beltway. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family, and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Fourteen clubs. That's what they tell us a legal golf bag can hold. And while that leaves a little room for balls and tees, it doesn't leave room for much else. There's no room left for deadlines or conference calls. Not a single pocket to hold the stress of the day or the to-do list of tomorrow. Only 14 clubs. Pick out the right one and drive it right down the middle of Pure Michigan. Your golf trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back. We continue on Beyond the Beltway. Charles Lipson from the University of Chicago is uh, one of our guests here from Illinois. And uh, Andrew J. Polk is a talk show host for KTSM in El Paso, Texas. And uh, Steve uh, uh, Lutnick also joins him. And uh, let's take a moment and let uh, Andrew tell uh, uh, the audience a little bit about yourself. Andrew, you've been doing the talk show host for uh, several years in the afternoon on KTSM, correct? Yes, the show for several years, we actually, uh, since the pandemic started, decided we wanted to have a local talk show back on our airwaves and uh, been doing that for about six months now. Talk El Paso, the show I host, we've been doing for about four years now in total. Very good. And uh, we should also mention uh, you went to Knox College. So for those listening on WGIL, which is one of our affiliates, they uh, did you ever do any work down mm-hmm. there? Or did you just work on the local radio station, the uh, uh, campus station? Yep, I was on the campus station, WVKC, where I got my start in radio. Very good. Well, the fans in uh, Galesburg, I'm sure, are cheering you tonight. Uh, Steve Letnick, uh, take a moment to tell us a little bit about you. Give us about 20-second uh, bio on yourself. Okay. Uh, grew up, born and raised down here. Uh, grew up on the farm. Uh, we farm right along the Rio Grande. And uh, went to college here at the University of Texas at El Paso with a degree in uh, political science. And I uh, went right back to work uh, in the in the local ag industry. I uh, worked for my family. I managed a couple of farms, and uh, now I'm now in ag sales. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks. What do y'all raise? Uh, we raise mostly uh, pecans, alfalfa, and uh, pima cotton. Oh, there you go. You need any? You need any special picks for you, uh, Charles? <laughs> Well, you know, I'm you're an old cotton picker from Mississippi, right? Where where <laughs> cotton was king, and but where we also had a lot of pecans. Mm. Uh, and in fact, pecans. we had them in my yard, and I uh, I've shelled many a pecan. Okay. Not a fun job. Right on. Very good. See, <laughs> not you a fun job. And you didn't like know Charles. Andrew, I, Charles, we didn't know you were a farmer at heart. 
Uh, I am not. Well, you're not. Uh, I am not. It was like when my dad sent me out to uh, chop concrete uh, with one of those. It's a lot harder than pecans. It was, well, it was designed to encourage me to go to college. Okay, very good. Okay. <laughs> but like Andrew, I got yeah. my start on a college radio station. Very good. Well, Whereabouts? Go. Whereabouts? Uh, at Yale. Um, well, and, pardon me. Well, yes, but I deign to talk to you, Bruce. Yeah, well, that's, but you, but you, you, were, uh, you went to Harvard. Was that considered a step up or a step down from Yale? Um, I went to Yale for my undergraduate okay. and then Harvard for my MA and PhD, okay. and I uh, okay. liked them both and had been deeply disappointed by how uh, politically correct okay. they've become over the years well, because, in my view, free speech and open discourse are the very heart of a good education. Right. So it's not that they're on the left or on the right. And listening to this program and listening to this program, I would add that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you always (laughs) make a point of having that kind of discourse. Well, we tried. It's important. I want to go back to our discussion of the day. Uh, Before the break, I asked uh, uh, Steve, and I want to get uh, Andrew's response as well. Uh, of the friends and neighbors that you live in, in the community where you reside, uh, I would assume there are some people, uh, they may be very religious people, they may be very liberal people, but they may view this influx from Central and South America or Central America uh, as as not such a, a horrendous situation for the United States. And if those people... Uh, from those areas were to make it to their backyard, Steve, they might open the door, give them sanctuary, and and try to uh, uh, to be an American guide for them during the period when they're waiting for the Border Patrol to show up or during this period when they're waiting to have their day in court. Are there many people like that that you encounter, Steve? Uh not, not, not as such. I think, like, I mean, you know, handing over some food and water and sending them on their way uh, uh-huh. is not uncommon in certain areas. Right. So, uh, but for the most part, the the uh, the larger powers that be provide services. Like, it, um, we have uh, county funded uh, Project Amistad, which has buses that drive routes, and they'll pick people up and take them. Uh, to um, to sanctuaries that are run by the local Catholic diocese. Andrew, what's your answer to that question? Because I'm sure you may talk to some of them on your radio show. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, I don't think it's so much on an individual level. There's actually a whole microcosm of nonprofits that do get support from the uh, city and county, um, kind of the groups called Annunciation House, uh, Diocesan Migrant and Refugees Services, Hope Border Institute, that all kind of, it's an interesting almost symbiosis with the federal agencies in previous administrations and seems to be coming back forth that uh, when people have been processed through the initial asylum, they'll almost be handed off to these other local nonprofit groups that will then organize immediate shelter, immediate medical needs, and often transport out of our area. And that's that, that's been going on since uh, before the Obama administration, even that kind of yeah. uh, a mechanism that exists in our area. So the national media perception, I mean, if you just watch the network news every night and, and Fox and, and or uh, MSNBC or CNN, mm-hmm. 
uh, th- there's a perception of you have the you have the poor family uh, struggling. They're, they've walked several hundred miles or more uh, through the desert. They've made it to the border and uh, they've been turned away. And the, the, the perception is that they will go into a jail-like situation uh, with cages for kids. And, and again, the, the perception is that they now they, they have now arrived in hell. They thought they were arriving in America and their situation is really, really bad. But and, and again, the media keeps playing that narrative over and over and over again. First of all, would you acknowledge that that's the media perception of what's happening uh, once they uh, hit the U.S. border? Uh, Andrew, I'll let you tackle that first. I mean, yeah, kids in cages isn't a compelling statement. And to a certain extent, that does happen. The Border Patrol facilities that do exist now were designed for those previous waves that you were kind of describing of, uh, you know, like almost single adult working age males crossing to Mm -hmm. not have any interaction with law enforcement. And for those that were, they were holding cells till they were processed. So there is a period that they go through that. But there are policies that uh, limit the amount of time that specifically children can spend in those type of facilities. And then the largely, again, in our local area, the nonprofit community kind of steps in to then deal with that. On the flip side, I will say that what's happening with this recent influx is that there have been some family units that have been being brought to our area, flown here from the other swamped areas, and they are getting sent straight back to Mexico is what we have been hearing happening recently. So that is a continuation of, uh, it's it's not catch and release. It's they're captured and they are sent back to Mexico? Yes, and it's not under MPP. It's technically under Title 43, the Trump-era policy for coronavirus restrictions, and that's almost solely for family units is what we're hearing from our area. The children is a kind of catch and release, but it's more complicated because they can't just be released, have a good day kind of thing. They're worked with either sponsors or other organizations that can then deal with them in the long term. Steve, how would you elaborate on that? How would you elaborate on that? Yeah, so... Um, I can uh, the the one of the facilities where where the majority of people in our area were being housed during the Trump administration. It was uh, right next to our farm, actually on land that used to be our farm that was taken by the federal government. So that facility that, that they had there that got the that got the most coverage, that got the mm-hmm. picture of Ocasio Cortez crying at the chain link fence and all yeah. that. That facility had. Uh, uh, had medical care, round-the-clock care for these kids. They had, uh, they built a giant sod soccer field uh, for them. They had a movie theater that played Disney movies around the clock. They had uh, teachers and counselors that were there working with these kids. And uh, I knew several women that they, they hired local women uh, uh, out of out of the town of Tornillo. I knew several women that worked there that said they wished they could have taken their kids with them to work because it was more like a summer camp than anything else. So the hype that the media played into making that seem so bad uh, was was incredibly blown out of proportion. Now, there, there, there were holding facilities at the same time that, that before anybody gets processed where, uh, where, where people were being uh, being put into facilities that, that were incapable of housing the numbers of people that they were seeing. So um, those facilities, but once they once they had once they had separated the unaccompanied minors, the unaccompanied minors went to that that summer camp right next to our farm. Do you have uh, Andrew? You might know about this again. Part of this this lore of what's happening with those coming from Central America is they have sometimes paid thousands of dollars 
to coyotes to get them in the United States. And and I've heard figures ten, fifteen thousand dollars. Where does a family growing up and trying to survive in in Honduras or Guatemala, where do they come up with fifteen thousand dollars to give to a coyote? I mean, a lot of times, at least for family units, kind of the previous waves we've seen locally is they'll kind of liquidate everything they have. I mean, they will leave everything behind and only kind of keep what they can literally carry. When it comes to the kids, I think it's a scrounging up anything possible and sending the kids under whatever kind of marketing that the coyotes and the cartels are putting out that, oh, no, no, they'll get everything they want. You totally need to do this right now. And they'll just breathe through because they're kids. I mean, we've heard some responses and things along those lines that, yeah, you should absolutely give us as much money as you possibly can. Oh, you can only give us 5,000 of the 10,000, but you have literally nothing else. Okay. I guess we'll take it. Kind of a situation is what it seems like mm-hmm. in some of the stories I've heard. Steve, when we come back, I'm sure you've heard uh, a number of stories uh, that you might want to share with our audience. And uh, we thank you very much for joining us tonight to uh, bring your unique perspective to our national discussion. We will do that when we roll on. I'm Bruce Dumont. 1-800-723-8029 is the phone number. If you're listening on KTSM or anywhere else with a question or comment, do give us a call. 1-800-723-8029. I'm Bruce Dumont. This is Beyond the Beltway. Tonight, from Evanston, Illinois and El Paso, Texas. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Along the way is where we find the unexpected. Along the way is where we take in the scenery and often where we have the most fun. Sure, along the way can be the place we stop to fill up or grab a bite to eat. But in Michigan, along the way becomes the place we've been longing for. Because enjoying the journey is always pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Steve Letnick is uh, joining us from El Paso, Texas this evening. And uh, Steve, uh, before the break, I asked uh, to you to come up with any particular story or anecdote that you personally have participated in that you think uh, our national audience would like to know about. Well, well, um, I mean, we can go. We can go back to when when I was a uh, when I was when I was a teenager working on the farm mm-hmm. uh, one summer I was uh, sixteen and uh, I was I was spraying for Johnson grass in our in our cotton field and uh, uh, had a guy try to steal my truck from me had it not been for the for the the quick action of a, of a, one of our one of our other farm employees um, Mr. Rosas if he hadn't come to hadn't come to my aid I would have had my would have had my vehicle stolen not even mm-hmm. uh, about 20 yards from the border and no more than a hundred yards away from uh, a border patrol lookout point mm-hmm. that just missed the guy coming over missed him coming through the trees missed him coming over to where where i was in, in, the, in the cotton mm-hmm. field and uh, never saw him and that was a regular occurrence mm-hmm. 
before we had the benefit of the wall, before we had the benefit um, of, of, of having that wall and having that protection from people coming across and and uh, and being able to do get, get away with doing whatever they wanted. Is there anything? And, uh, let me ask you this, Steve. Is there anything that mm-hmm. we can do? And I, when I say we, I mean either the state of uh, Texas or the United States government uh, through its immigration policies. Is there anything we can do that would dramatically stop those coming into our, or attempting to come into our country? Yeah, I just, this is, I mean, uh, above and beyond is, is if, 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 if our politicians would speak with their, uh, with the hyperbole of making promises to, to, Welcome everybody with open arms, and like um, Joe Biden saying, I wouldn't, uh, I, I won't deport anybody for the first hundred days. Every time you say something like that, it gets heard on the other side, and there's real world implications to that, you know. And all the hype about the wall and the wall being some kind of a racial issue, but when El Diario uh, newspaper out of Juarez in 2016, when they went to interview farmers on the other side of the river. Farmers on the other side of the river said that they welcomed the wall with open arms because for them, the wall would mean that the cartels would cease to use their farms as staging points to get people across, to get drugs across, and the like. So when people who don't live in the area and don't live, uh, have to live with the consequences, it's very easy for them to make broad, generalizing statements that make it very hard for us to deal with the real-world effects of those statements. Andrew Polk, what would you add uh, from your perspective that uh, uh, a story, an anecdote that you think the national audience should hear tonight? Well, what I would say is that, I mean, we have seen a big change that has been going on with the patterns of immigration, even just through our area. And while Mexico may not have actually paid for the wall, Mexico did effectively construct its own kind of version of the wall, a virtual version of the wall during and towards the end of the last administration in the policies they enacted, both their support of the migrant protection protocols, MPP, so-called Remain in Mexico, and their own activation and almost creation from scratch of a border security service, which they hadn't really had before, that of the Guardia Nacional, the Mexican National Guard, kind of getting repurposed to that. Now, I think people may disagree on what those impacts were, but Things were very different towards the end of the last administration because of those effects of those policies. And now that some things are changing here, we're starting to see what the consideration is from those that are either a part of the process or considering being part of the process or now having in our region. So the Trump administration got the attention of the president of Mexico. Things improved and now they are declining again. Yeah, the Trump administration was definitely working with Mexico. I mean, they put a lot of pressure on them and the the rhetoric and everything, but it's hard to argue with what happened now then versus what happened now, even though I think there's a lot of discussion to be had about the intention or the way it was exactly gone about. Charles Lipson, my question to you, is there a, uh, what's the closest thing to a happy ending on this story at the border? The, uh, they need to start uh, rebuilding the wall. Uh, which was illegally stopped. That is, it had been appropriated, the money had been appropriated by Congress. There are laws that say that the president cannot unilaterally not 
uh, use money that's appropriated by Congress. That was actually passed uh, over President Nixon's veto by a Democratic Congress that, that was tired of his imperial presidency. Uh, I'm struck by the fact that we've had a breakdown of law enforcement. And it's been a almost deliberate breakdown of law enforcement by the federal government. They simply don't want to keep people from illegally entering the country. They need to, to, to change policies dramatically, and they need to send that message clearly. Uh, to people who would be coming north because in the... But, in don't you, but you don't say that on the line, do you, Charles? I mean, are you charging those that are on the, the, you know, in the line on, on duty of this, or is it uh, uh, oh, no, no, no. malfeasance this on those federal above? federal policy. This okay. is a federal policy. Joe Higher Biden ups. stopped the building of the wall. Joe Biden is the one who said he wouldn't send people back. This is a new thing that they won't even admit there's a crisis there. This is like Baghdad Bob. Yeah. Okay. On that note, we are out of time. Charles Lipson from the University of Chicago. Thank you very much for joining us. Andrew J. Polk, thank you very much. Afternoons on KTSM. And uh, Steve uh, Litnick, thank you, thank you very much for offering your assessment tonight. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks to Connor McKnight. See you next week, everybody. Good night from Evanston, Illinois. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games, but I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope. Our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. 
My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership.